Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Engage. That's the cheesiest thing I, I think anyone has ever said on these Watches podcasts. I know. I mean, but, but if you think about it, I haven't done it yet. I mean, that's fair. Right. I mean, like, it'd be weird if I didn't do it, like, at least once. Just getting it out of the way now? Yeah. This week, we are going to discuss the Star Trek Next Generation episodes Hide and Q and Haven. So let's go ahead and start with Hide and Q, which is the ninth episode of the first season. Little known fact. I, I know that a lot of people did not watch The Next Generation when it was first aired in syndication. But if you did, you in fact know that hide and Q is how we got the term hide and seek for the game. <laughs> it, it didn't exist before that. And somebody who watched The Next Generation was like, hey, you know that game where somebody hides and we try to find them? Yeah, hide and find. No, we should call it hide and seek. True story. It That's is some a, trivia. It a is a true fact. story, yes. This episode originally aired on November 23rd, 1987. The story was originally written by Maurice Hurley, but underwent numerous rewrites by the show's creator, Gene Roddenberry. Surprise, surprise. The episode was directed by Cliff Bull and sees the return of John Delancey as Q. Quick summary, on their way to provide emergency aid to a colony in the Sigma-3 system, the Enterprise is once again accosted by Q, who claims that the Q Continuum is interested in recruiting Riker as a new Q if only he can survive their game. Sam, what were your first thoughts on this episode? My first thoughts are it was significantly more fun watching Q once I realized that John Delancey was the voice of a prominent character in the Assassin's Creed franchise. Yeah, I, I forgot that you actually, like it was halfway yeah. through the episode where you were like, I know where I've I, heard that yeah. voice before. What character? He's William Miles, who's the father of Desmond Miles, who is one of the, I mean, we could talk about Assassin's Creed all day long and it wouldn't make any sense, but the first, <laughs> up, up to Origins, where I kind of got stalled out, where it stopped being Assassin's Creed and just became a generic open world game. That is the start of basically a third iteration of the Assassin's Creed storyline. Uh, going backwards, the one immediately before that was the one that, you know, you're like, in, you, player, are a person who has infiltrated the Abstergo, you know, they, they're making video games, you know, while they're, while they're doing evil. But the first storyline is about the initial accessing of the DNA chain, and Desmond Miles is the version 2.0 of the person who gets kidnapped and he ends up being a big figure and he's estranged from his dad except his dad was estranged from him for for secret reasons and oh i gotta love those secret reasons right and then they're reunited so i mean like there's nothing like i mean say what you want about this this franchise and it's not great but and they've stopped trying to figure out it's very x-files like trying to figure out an overarching storyline it's not working but they were trying something back then and Delancey was part of it. I have to assume, though, that you say his name was William Miles. That is what I said. I have to assume that he's not as dramatic, goofy, whatever adjective you want to put in here as the character Q. 
so is his most famous, and I use that term very, very loosely, but he has a line that gets quoted a lot, beware of the easy path, knowledge grows only through challenge, which seems very Q. This is the second time that we've seen Q. Like you said, it's interesting that either they decided to bring this character back after the pilot or they always planned on this character being a recurring character. What do you think about John DeLancey in this particular role and this continuation of this antagonistic relationship that he has with the Enterprise and with Picard specifically? It makes sense in a way because on the one hand, it seems early to do this. I mean, you really couldn't do it before. I mean, this is like the least amount of time that would make it acceptable. But I think the idea is that the first time he showed up in the pilot was a way of challenging Picard, Picard. (laughs) So we would learn more about him. And that's what they have him doing in this episode with Riker. So it's kind of a way of saying, okay, it's it's like the 8th or ninth episode or 10th, depending on how you're counting, whatever. Let's find out something more about Riker. And to do that, let's bring this dick back in. It's really interesting some of the stuff we also find out about Q in this episode, although he is remarkably the same character that we saw in the pilot. Like Usually when you see characters like this, they evolve over time. It feels like John Delancey found this character in the pilot and was just, this is the character, this is what we're doing. And it's remarkably similar. Is Q like the music meister? I could see that. Perhaps not as um, benevolent. Not as daring Chris. Uh, Yeah, something like that. I think that's really what you're saying. I mean, Q is out for himself more than he is Can you imagine John Delancey singing Teenage Dream? I could absolutely imagine that. there you go. We also get, I, I don't remember if he mentioned the Q continuum in the first episode in Encounter at Farpoint. We just watched it like a couple weeks ago, but I, I don't, don't think, think so. I don't think he mentioned it, but here we get what I think is the real introduction of the Q continuum. The idea that he is not the only Q, that Q is both an entity and a series of entities mm-hmm. that exist somewhere that have transcended space and time that have all of this power. And there's this sense that he has been chosen as the person to communicate for the Q to the Federation, to Starfleet, specifically Picard and Riker, but that he maybe isn't calling the shots or maybe it's like a democratic system. You know what I mean? Like a telepathic democratic system. What what do you, how do you feel about this? Well, I I think it's really interesting that, that we start to get some lore about the world of Q or whatever. <laughs> because, and I mean, it, it, again, much like hide and seek, it's really hard to think back before the X-Files, which is when lore started happening. You know, they didn't really In do... In television. Yeah. No, period. I mean, like... <laughs> Forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know of a single science fiction or fantasy franchise that really had lore before Chris <laughs> Carter was like, you know what we should do? We should, and and this is going to be fun, right? Because we have the internet, right? Nobody's going to read lore in books. That's silly. But we have the internet now. So we can, 
you know, fill in gaps and have discussions and just kind of build the lore that way. And and occasionally when 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 we need to, we'll have, you know, Anderson or Duchovny, you know, you know, monologue or narrate. And I and I, I'm gonna call it, Chris Carter said. And he thought about it for a little bit and he said, info dumping. <laughs> That's so so you might not have known this, but Chris Carter also invented info dumping. <laughs> no lore before the X Files. That is a fact. J.R.R. Tolkien is 35. <laughs> Done now. I don't know. I mean, I, it's <laughs> that interesting. joke doesn't work, but okay. I, I mean, it's interesting, joke or not. It is interesting to think about this in relation to the X Files because, like you said, the X Files is really one of the first shows that had the benefit of people on the internet being able to talk about the lore. Before that, we had Star Trek, where we didn't necessarily have people on the internet, but we did have people writing books, making fanzines, like trying to piece together lore out of a series. I think, too, that that tells you a lot about Star Trek's place as a serious text. And I'm not saying that with any quote, air quotes. Or, <laughs> no, I'm really not. I, I, I know you're expecting that, but I'm not. You know, and that's the thing about speculative fiction, right? That's the thing about science fiction and fantasy is it is lore. It is not just the primary text. And it's why, you know, you had that documentary Trekkies made. It's why Shatner has a difficult relationship with some of these things. It's why, you know, comic book guy exists on The Simpsons. It is the worst of everything. Science fiction and fantasy are where that oh you like tolkien tell me ev- tell me what was on the what is the fourth line of the cimmerillion page 17 what tell me right now well you're not a real fan i mean that comes from this and and the, and the, the thing about it is is like i i'm not i don't care right about this so the test when it comes to something like this is i don't care if you call me a real fan of star trek I pretty much shared my bona fides of Star Wars that you would never call me that. I don't think anybody would, and that's fine. But can I enjoy the show just watching the show? And, you know, that I think that's what a lot of people have actually complained about Star Wars since Disney+. And, and they actually, I know they complained about it with the Marvel TV shows. Like, I don't want to have to do homework, which... right. Which, I don't know, watching a TV show shouldn't be homework. Maybe that's just a take, but I don't know. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the ways that Star Trek stands out, especially from something like Star Wars. There was lore. There was Splinter the Mind's Eye. There were some comics. But, you know, the Christmas special. (laughs) The two Ewoks (laughs) movies. But prior to the Timothy Zahn Thrawn trilogy... I may have just named you, I've probably left out one or two, but I pretty much just named you all of the non-trilogy movie things. Star Trek was never like that. Lore is fine so far as it goes, and we're not going to watch every episode, so I'm going to miss stuff. But that was never why we were doing this in the first place. No, and I would have never expected you to necessarily notice him talking yeah. about the continuum. Oh, I noticed. But I, I was just curious if you had noticed, and what did you think about this sort of rounding out perhaps of how this character works because before it was like he's a singular omnipotent being and now it's like he's in this well collection of omnipotent beings so first of all you've met me before so you know (laughs) trying to like instill a bunch of lore in me is probably not going to be good at this point 
Also, I can't help it because it's Star Trek. As you said, they kind of, you know, we have this tradition, again, in speculative fiction of once we decide we want to do something with something and the previous narrative does not fit what we want to do now, we have a thing. So once again, I'm sorry. It's a ret <laughs> You're funny. No, I'm not. But what we really get from this is Q telling Picard and then later Riker that the Q continuum is now interested in humanity because of what happened at Encounter at Farpoint. And they are specifically interested in connecting with humanity by elevating Riker, perhaps, to the level of Q in order to gain that new energy, gain that new information that they would get from adding another member to their continuum. And, I, and I'll say this now, because Riker in my head, because we have a friend who looks a lot like him. <laughs> yeah, we I talked just, about this. I'm like, yeah, when, when Chris does the thing, well, that's not his name, <laughs> but perhaps it should be. Going back to the episode where Picard somewhat reluctantly gives Wesley a rank right? because he's taking an interest in him, right? It, it seems very analogous. Like Q is deigning to take interest in these people, just like Picard is deigning to take interest in a child, which is what Q sees all of humanity as, right? right. Stupid children. Why is there a child here? Which is hilarious because he's the one who's like, a game you say, let's play a game. I mean, Q is like the most childish person yeah. on the show. And I think that might be really difficult for, you know, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be with somebody who, you know, operates at a very high level, is able to do a lot of things, but acts like a child. I can't imagine what that would be like for <laughs> anybody ever to deal with. You're, you're really leaning real hard on the sarcasm today, aren't you? Just today. Just today. Just today. I'm just saying, this is like the third time you've pretended that something didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, at least you know I thought about the episode. <laughs> That's right? true. That's true. What did you think about the Q continuum's interest in, in Riker instead of Picard, even though Q himself seems to have more fun talking to Picard than he does Riker? Right. And, and I think I should say the thing right now. Like, this was not a good episode. And so, like, you know, finding out, finding a lot of things to say around the periphery is, is avoiding getting to the core that this episode fell apart, I guess, around the halfway point. It, it really reminded me of an original series episode. As I've said, they're all about 10 minutes too long. Well, this episode was just half-baked, right? I don't understand why the pigs from Angry Birds were like the French Revolution people. I don't really get it. I think they lost their way. I think what I told you at the time was that if you read the script of this episode without seeing it, you'd say, this is bad. Like, you'd, you'd know it was not good. And, and so, to answer your question, the fact that Delancey and Frakes and Stewart are able to make this even halfway interesting, these, these interactions with each other in the way that you ask, I mean, that's the only really good thing about the episode. It could have been much better. It should have been much better. Nothing will save this episode, but that is the most interesting thing. 
I've been surprised because you and everyone else have described this as an episodic show, and I'm not saying it's not. But within that, they've done a really neat job so far of developing characters. And this is this is a really good example of that, even though, once again, it's a bad episode. Yeah, and I, I actually think it's interesting that you said that this reminds you of a TOS episode. And once I learned that Gene Roddenberry had done... It's on done, a TOS set. Yeah, once I had learned that Gene Roddenberry did a lot of the rewrites for this, it suddenly made a lot more sense mm. to me, this episode, because a lot of people have compared it to the second pilot of the original series where No Man Has Gone Before, where Gary Mitchell gets superpowers and goes mm. evil very quickly. People have also compared it to Plato's stepchildren, where the character Alexander rejects godlike powers in a manner that's kind of similar to the way Riker does at the end yeah. of the episode. And so it it's not surprising to me that this episode comes across as an original series episode, because what it feels like is that the person who actually wrote it, Maurice Hurley, was maybe trying to do something different. And then Gene Roddenberry was like, no, like this is how we do the omnipotent being well, comes to Star Trek episode. So I think science fiction in general has a bad habit of doing this from time to time because science fiction is explorative. It's trying to think through ideas from a different point of view, you know, doing the, the whole defamiliarization thing. A lot of science fiction writers often get caught up in the vibes. Right. Right. I think that's probably the best way to say it. Like the botnet story. The one that Raiders, just won. Raiders of the Lost, whatever. Yeah, yeah, the one that just won best yeah, no which was, novelette. Which may have been the least good one in that category. It's a boring story. I'm not sure what it does. It vexes me that that story won. But I guess when we're doing vibes only, you know, no content, just vibes. That's something that, that Hugo voters dig, which is a whole different podcast. But my point is, like, that's what this is. I like stuff that's just vibes, but only when it's vibes that I like. That's the problem, right? With stuff that's vibes only. If you like it, then you really like it. But if you don't like the vibes, then it's like, no. Well, I think what they try to do a lot on the original series and in this episode is uh, you'll get what we're trying to say, right? Yeah. We, we have something to say. Here are some vibes. Well, no. That's not how it works. You are like one of our students. You have to tell us the thing and then do the thing. Right. You show your work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But I will say, despite the problems that this perhaps has with its plot, with its content, with its half-bakedness, as you say, there are a lot of really legitimately silly and funny moments with some of these characters some of the highlights include Worf pouring out his drink while making eye contact with Q. That was great. That was the best part of the episode. What did you think about Worf in this episode? He he has that moment. He has some really funny moments where, like, I guess they just, they're like, oh, there's an enemy on this planet. I guess we should just send Worf out to look for them. And he's, like, doing army maneuvers, like, crawling and, like, running across this set. So there's that. And then, of course, we get the thing that he Riker gives him, the present that he thinks Worf wants the most is a Klingon woman to have rough sex with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, I think it was a good impulse. I think that was solid. I think that that uh, if you tried that, it would work maybe eight out of 10 times with with all the different folks out there in space. But he just guessed the wrong one on this time and 
you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I I didn't appreciate that Jordy kind of kink shame Worf a little bit. He's like, is this what you think did. sex is? He did. And it's like, uh, I mean, if it's consensual, Jordy, come on. Come on. Take a look. It's in a book called the Kama Sutra. <laughs> what did you think about the, the ridiculous <laughs> drink pouring out moment? I loved it. No notes. Yeah. You said it was like watching a cat. <laughs> it was. It was. We also get this ridiculously self-referential Shakespeare off in the ready room, which, by the way, I think this is the first time we've really seen the ready room, this office that Picard has off of the bridge. How many rooms are there <laughs> off the bridge? I'm just saying there's a lot more space on this ship than there was in the original series. But is yeah, it like a, it's like Q, the it's like the breakfast nook. <laughs> so Q decides the other to, the other bridge is like the dining room, which you never use except when company's over. Uh, you yeah. just have all your dinners in the breakfast nook. Oh, is that actually how it works? Yeah, yeah, it that is, is how it Look works. Look at that. Q decides to just start reading random passages from Shakespeare yep. to prove that humanity should, I guess, join the Q continuum or should be honored to be considered by... I don't know exactly what he's trying to prove. But the point is, is that he gets to read a lot of Shakespeare at Patrick Stewart, Shakespeare extraordinaire, and Patrick Stewart gets to return the volley by reading... Is that a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Sure. Reference. He that- gets to return the volley by not only quoting or reciting Hamlet, by actually like performing Hamlet for Q. And I think my favorite part of this is, is when Q was like, should I go on? Do you need more Hamlet? And Patrick Stewart, I'm calling him Patrick Stewart because he is Patrick Stewart in this moment, says, no, I know Hamlet. This feels very self-referential. And yet also I thought it was very funny. Nerds. <laughs> what did you think about the relationship between Q and Picard in this? Q thinks that Picard is too uptight and that Riker is the one that shows more potential because he's more creative and flexible. First of all, Picard is too uptight. That might have been my only point. There might not be. First of all, Q was right. Second of all, Q was right. Yeah, I just, I think it's interesting that, like, for somebody who's there to see Riker, he spends an awful lot of time with Picard, needling I don't, him. I don't know. Was he him. there? To th- I don't know. Does Q was, have a crush on Picard? Obviously. Was Q really there to see Riker, or did he get distracted by shiny toy? Did he get rebuffed by Picard and said, fine, I'll play with a new toy? I mean, he does make the wager with Picard. Yeah, see, he didn't come with the intent of messing with Riker. It just... It's just making the best the best of a bad situation. What did you think about Riker's struggle with absolute power? Whomst among us <laughs> has not been granted absolute power and struggled with it. Whomst. Jokes aside, after this one, it kind of reminds me of Bill Murray's character in Ghostbusters. When an entity asks you if you want absolute power, you say yes. Except you can't, right? Like, that's the point. You can't right. do that. Bacard tells him he doesn't think humanity's ready for that kind of power. They are very clearly not. They'll never be ready. But that's the point. It's just interesting to me that Riker is the most even-keeled person that we've seen so far. He seems really well-prepared to use them when he first gets them. Like, he's using them responsibly. And we just see this, like, total shift in character 
based on these powers. Well, I mean, that's like it's like Lost Horizon, right? They they get to they get to Shangri-La and things are great for like a day. That's the whole point, right? You can't actually get to Utopia because if you did, you'd break it. That's the thing about humanity. Is you can't you can't be given absolute power, you can't be given paradise cuz you'll turn it into a parking lot as the song <laughs> says. I mean, but that's the Garden of Eden too, right? I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Like the the nature of humans is to exercise free will if that's what you believe. So they're they're never going to be absolute power is never going to be a good situation. I, I, how many years has it been? A few hundred years? I don't think that's enough time to to get with it and iron <laughs> out the flaws in humanity so they they could be trusted with absolute power. Like there's just no I mean, Q does say time and space are simpler than humans at the end of the episode. Well, yeah, but it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. So we've already talked about Worf's gift, but what Picard ends up doing is allow Riker to see the folly of how he's using his powers because Riker proposes that he gives his, he give, uses his powers to give his friends gifts. And so Picard is basically like, fine, go ahead, see what happens. And it's interesting to see, first of all, what Riker thinks everybody wants, and second of all, how they react to it. Because Data doesn't even let him make him human. He says, no, like, I don't want, it would be an illusion. It wouldn't be real. I would know it wasn't real. I don't want that. He does give Jordy sight for a little while, and Jordy appreciates it momentarily but then says like i don't want to i don't like where it came from like put me back the way i was and then do you do you remember the episode of lost when hurley won the lottery yeah and then he takes his mom to the house yeah that's right that's what this is yeah where it's like be careful what you wish for yeah. or yeah and then wesley we get to see him as an adult because supposedly that's what wesley wants in an episode full of stupid things that might have been the one that was most stupid. I also didn't like that Riker completely disregarded Bev's wishes in regards to her child. Well, I mean... Like, he didn't ask that, anybody's consent before he did this. Okay, you know, I'm just going to have to say it. I'm sorry. The moment that kid was born, it didn't matter what she wanted. It's Explain. A, it's a child, not free will. God. Once that baby is born, you have to do everything for that baby. Your life's over. But that's the point is she doesn't want this for him. I and know. she straight up says it, but he does it anyway. Well, but, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing, right? When you're a parent, you are supposed to parent, which means inflicting your will on a child. How much or how little is up to you and how bad of a person you are. But in this case, you know, she actually knew better. Well, we think, we think, I mean, probably, I don't know. I think she was also afraid that he would hurt him. Well, right. Like, she didn't know what he was going to do. Anyway, it just, it bothered me that he altered a minor without his or <laughs> his parents' consent. It was a different time, Tessa. Anyway, what I love about this, they all reject Riker's gifts, and Riker says, I've been a bit of an idiot, haven't I? And Picard says, Yes. Yeah, you have, buddy, but it's okay. And then Q gets recalled by the continuum, supposedly because he violated the terms of the wager with Picard. 
They had to end the episode. Yeah, they had to end it somewhere. Although, although. Yeah. I would like to propose a better ending to this episode. Ooh, okay. You ready? Yeah. So, as we get to the end of the episode, you hear, mm, what you say, mm, <laughs> that you only meant well. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Just think, we would have never had that song if it wasn't for this episode. All right. I'm not going to engage with that. Which is what they should do whenever Q shows up. Well, that's. I think they want to not engage with it. I don't think he lets them. That's the problem. See, in this episode, we do get the classic is this- Picard realizing it's Q and like giving this like panicked sigh of like, oh my God. It gets worse when he starts to show up. So, I mean, so basically you're saying recording a podcast with me is like the episodes where Q shows up. Kind of. You're like Picard. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. All right, let's move on. Meanwhile. Let's move on to our second episode, Haven, which is the 11th episode of the first season, originally aired on November 30th, 1987, directed by Richard Compton. The story was originally created by Lan Okun and developed into the final script by Tracy Torme. When the Enterprise arrives at the planet Haven for some R&R, Deanna receives a message from her mother, Loxana Troy, that Deanna's arranged marriage with the human Wyatt Miller must take place. However, Picard and crew might find that planning and hosting a wedding with Loxana Troy involved might not be the peaceful vacation they all hoped for. Meanwhile, a plague ship appears in the sector, threatening the planet. What were your first thoughts on this episode? We just finished season two of Only Murders in the Building, which features one of the leads from the two-season wonder great news, Andrea Martin. That's that's this character, right? Like, that mom from great news. Oh, I was thinking of her as the mom from The Good Fight, which is a very similar character. Well, it's the same character. Right. I mean, yeah. This is, oh. This, uh, and I have some experience with this, too. Let's. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Did this did this episode it did. trigger you it in any did. way? It did. It did. Let's talk about Loxana Troy. So this is the return of Majel Barrett to Star Trek. This, to me, feels a bit like a present to her from Gene Roddenberry because of the way that Nurse Chapel was kind of written out of the later parts of the show and the films. She gets to actually have this recurring character who fans are very divided over. Oh, so it's it's fine. It's fine to be a jerk when you're a dude and it's Q. But not. But you can't be agent of chaos woman. Exactly. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Exactly. Well, I, I'm very interested to know what you think of Loxana Troy, daughter of the fifth house, holder of the sacred chalice of Rick's heir to the holy rings of Beta Z, as she introduces herself in this episode. This woman is, and you could guess this from her titles. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you know, if you're going to gift her with this character, I mean, at least you wrote a solid episode around her. I mean, like, this is a good gift for an actor. You really loved this episode. Well, it was good. This is (laughs) this is really one of the first ones I think we've seen on this show where we get that domestic storyline that we kind of talked a little bit about during our discussion of the pilot. Mm. She she treated Picard like the help. (laughs) (laughs) Loxana kind of treats everyone like the help. Well, right. I mean, like, no, I I know. 
Yeah. I know. So <laughs> I, I love and how. He, and he wanted to play along. That That's what really seals it. Like, he's like, okay, I'll do this. I can't wait to, like, his his inner cat came out that day. He was like, oh, let's see what happens. But she ends up making him very uncomfortable by the well, end of yeah. the episode. Well, I mean, that's what she does. She teases him. It wouldn't be a day that ends in why if she didn't. <laughs> in space, no one can hear you scream unless this woman is on your case. And then, and then they can hear you from galaxies away. So I have a confession to make. Uh-huh. Most of my appearances on the podcast Podrates. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is hosted by our friends Elise and Matt, who did the takeover for Star Trek Beyond. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most of them have been about episodes with Loxana Troy. Oh, my God. Because I love her so much. I am a Loxana stan. However, I do think that this introduction of the character, while it has everything that this character has, and she has realized this character to a great degree, Mm -hmm. it doesn't quite have the complexity that this character will have later in the show. Like, she's kind of a joke right now. A good joke? Yeah, a very good joke, I think. Well, I mean, that's, you you know, okay. So, you know, we talk a lot about Wrath of Khan. I joke about it quite a bit, as you know. One of the reasons that Wrath of Khan is seen by so many to be the best of the, the the motion pictures, which we think is debatable, but I think one of the big things that counts in its favor is Ricardo Montalban right. re-upping this character and giving it nuance. And like they had no idea, no idea that they would do that. But they did. Now, unfortunately, they, they kind of cheapened it by having Broccoli Cummerbund come in and, <laughs> you know, do it again. But the point is that that kind of follow through really makes people happy. Right? Again, it's actually why the X-Files failed, because Chris Carter was unable to do it. It's why people love, you know, the Vince Gilligan duology. Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad in reverse order because he was able to do this kind of story, this kind of referential storytelling that we all like references, but you can't just make references. You have to do something. And when Khan shows back up, if you've seen the original episode, which is the first time I'd seen it, I had not. That means something. It's like, oh, look what you did with that story. Yeah, he would totally feel that way. That makes total sense. I actually built on it in Strange New Worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And you telling me that this is the first draft of a character who crosses over into a different series and is much more fleshed out, much fuller of a character tells me they learned from Montalban, you know, Khan. That, that you can do this and you should do this. Maybe maybe Vince Gilligan learned it from Rob Bowman. Maybe maybe he did. So Speaking of the X-Files. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to talk about her just a little bit more, especially her relationships with different characters. But what I think is very interesting about the way that this character is presented here, and of course we get a lot of it from her interactions with Deanna, but also a lot of it from her interactions with Wyatt as well, that she is fully telepathic. Like she is a a betazoid, but she's full betazoid, unlike Troy. And because of her telepathy, she believes in this thing that she calls radical honesty. This idea of always just saying 
what you think, you know, because everyone's going to know about it anyway, right? From the telepathy. But what ends up happening, in my opinion, is one, she uses it a way to, to just say whatever she thinks to anybody. Um, Hold on. That's what everybody who uses radical honesty right. does. That's the whole point of radical honesty is to be a dick. But the other thing that I think is interesting is because she's telepathic and she has no problem reading other people's minds, she tends to do this thing where she tells people how they feel. And it kind of like comes across as like, well, of course I feel that way, but did you have to say it? You remember the the character in Sense8 who talks about why Homo sapiens won? Yeah, I do remember that. Because they don't have empathy in yeah. that same way. Yeah, because this is damaging. This is hurtful. Right? Right. Like, you not being able to control when somebody's in your head, it, it deprives you, that, that this character said, of dishonesty. Dishonesty is what has kept us alive, apparently, I guess. Right. And I just thought that was a really interesting point that a a species of human or a subspecies or whatever that has the ability to do this would be a detriment. Well, the other thing in Sense8 is that it would be difficult for them to harm anybody that they were connected to in this way, right? It's difficult right. for somebody to be able to hurt someone yeah. when they feel everything that that other person feels. It yeah. doesn't seem to stop Loxana. <laughs> well, you know, so there was a big thing. I guess it would have been the late night. So radical honesty was really, I think, in the aughts, got to be more of a thing. You know, and then they turned it into Liar Liar. I think there were a couple of other movies that kind of, oh, there was the one where he always had to say yes. Yes, man. Wasn't it? Yeah, that was Jim yeah. Carrey, right? No. no. I'm pretty was sure that? it was. Isn't it Jim Carrey and Zoe Deschanel? You'd know, probably. Unless it's a completely no, different movie. Nope, nope. You're right. It was him both times. Okay. But prior to that, in the 90s, so maybe about the time when this show stopped airing, you'd start to see the acronym WYSIWYG, right? Mm -hmm. What you see is what you get, which is another iteration of radical... Well, I just... I, you know, I'm, I'm a straight shooter... No bull. They're just different ways of saying, I'm a jerk and you can't do anything about it. it yes. It's terrible. No, no, no. I hate this person who's like this. And, and, and they were very, very clever in creating a character who is that person. But for, I won't say it's a justified reason, but it's the closest thing to a justified reason. If that's what your body, mind, whatever can do. What are you going to do? Not use it? Well, Which is what Deanna does. Right. Uh, it's always intrigued me that Deanna, even though she's this character that has all this empathy and she's portrayed in this, like she's a psychologist. She talks about that in this episode. She apparently, according to her mother, is a very uptight Betazoid. Like, yeah. uh, could you imagine a planet of people that just share their thoughts all the time like this? Like you said, it would be impossible to lie. Well, I think that, I guess this is the part of the podcast where we go over to Star Wars for real. Mm -hmm. But I'm very interested to see what they do with Ahsoka. Right. right? Because moving out of the shows and into the, the book, we know just like 
uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, she shuts herself off to the Force. Now, she does it to avoid, you know, the Order, but she also does it because she was so hurt. And so what makes her interesting as a character is she made a conscious decision to cut it off and then makes a different conscious decision to say, I will turn it on when I want to use it. I will not be the servant of the Force. I will be a true Force user. Which I think is really interesting. And I hope they won't, of course, because we can't have nice things. But I hope they explore that. And so, you know, that's what, it's a very similar thing to what Deanna Troy's doing. She, I believe, from what little I've been given, understands the risks, understands that constantly telling people what they're thinking is like the douchiest thing you could do. And so she's going to do a different way. And that's admirable. And then her mom, wrecking ball that she is. When you said that, I made the connection to that scene in the transporter room where Loxana is trying to insist on talking to her daughter telepathically. And Deanna says, no, like, that's not how we talk. You know what else this reminded me? What? In English. Yeah. In English or in Espanol, you know, like like when you're, you know, trying to negotiate the the home language and the second language and but then we see her in the scenes leading up to them like literally from the transporter room to her her cabin or whatever deliberately antagonizes Deanna until Deanna speaks with her telepathically in the cabin and she says right. I thought you'd forgotten oh, how Oh you know how No yeah. she didn't She was just saying that to get another Right Ugh. I love the line because I think this is the only hint we get that this character has more going on than just, you know, this persona that she has. She says, I'm always serious. It's just my pleasant nature that makes it seem otherwise. That was a really neat What did you think of that line? I'm not going to take your bait. No, I am. Same thing it says about me. I'm thinking about, and we don't know this character's backstory, but I'm just thinking about the fact that this kind of behavior usually masks insecurity. The question is, what would it look like for a character to have this masking behavior, admit that that's what it is, but not be motivated by insecurity? What would that look like? And uh, I'm not sure we know. I'm not sure we could recognize that or talk about it. But in theory, if you told me that she was not motivated by insecurity and it was something else i guess i'd believe you i mean i believe you i mean about, i'm not gonna say anything. i believe you about warp factors and <laughs> the federation and klingons so, i mean i don't know i is it so hard to believe not really but but here when people do that it's usually a mask of ins- it's not always the same insecurity it's not always the same level of insecurity i've known people who have behaved this way or a very similar way who are masking insecurities that I would say are far greater than mine, which is a feat, by the way. All right. What was your question? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk about Deanna. So we got into her a little bit with her mom, which I do think this is interesting that we get to see a mom character who legitimately has stuff going on outside of her daughter, but it is an important part of Hey, her name's Crusher. That's like she gets one cool thing and that's it. Calm down. So it is interesting to see this relationship between them. But what did you think about this 
storyline with Deanna, did, I know you said that you didn't really care about her in the pilot episode, and we haven't seen yeah. her do a lot yet. So this is a, this is yeah. the first episode we've really seen focus on her. Yeah, and and um, yeah, she did not make an impression. And I told you that they were going to have to make me interested in her. I am at least a little interested in her now. I loved her outfit. It was pretty great. I, a jumpsuit. Yeah, hair looked very good. I, I will say, poor poor Wyatt. Like, you know, Troy seems to be like a great... She's catch, oh, right? Yeah. But I mean... I mean, the person who showed up in his brain, you know, like, I, you can't fight that. It's hard you just, to fight that. You just yeah. can't. I said to you when we finally saw her, I was like, what in the Daryl Hannah's going on here? Yeah. Ariana. Right? That's her name. Yeah. Yeah. I but, mean, it's but hard. I mean, like, telepathically, since he was a child, too. Yeah, so you that's got, hard, you got man. that, like, longevity of yeah. this fantasy. This is, this is very, very much less uncomfortable than Breaking Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, she was also a child. No. Well, I mean, but they were both children. Right. Exactly. That makes that's, it a makes lot it less. Yeah. That's absolutely that's true. That's practically a classic lit trope right there. That's fine. I thought that the or Ariana Wyatt thing was interesting me. because we get from Loxana this idea that everything is bound together, which you said was very much like the force. I did say that. It also feels a little bit like this other thing that's come up a couple times in science fiction and fantasy, which is particle entanglement, like the concept of particle entanglement as love. Like it's a, the idea that there are certain molecules that are bound together in such a way that even if you separated them, if you changed one, the other changes as well. Um, this comes up in Only Lovers Left Alive, for an example, that's like the one that popped to mind. A lot of people like to use this in science fiction as like this metaphor for love, like this metaphor for destiny or like that two people could be bound up in such a way that if you changed one or you affect or you did something to one, it would affect the other one. So as a matter of fact, then in back to the future, when George says you are my density, (laughs) it works. Yeah, it works. It makes total sense. I mean, what it's rubbish. I mean, it's just a stupid, I, come on. Did you care about this part of the episode at all? No, I don't, no. Okay, I I didn't know if you did or not. I, 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 listen, man, the force pretty much ruined me for any other hokey explanation. (laughs) Your hokey religion. I, I I just love how, how chill Loxana and Deanna are about this. They're like, I mean, all right. But that's the thing, like, you, like. You can just accept that things don't always work out, and that would accomplish the same purpose. Like, we were meant to get be together. We were destined to be together. It sounds great in a pop song, but Do you maybe, maybe you just compliment each other really well, and that's ultimately more meaningful than you're destined to be together, because first of all, that's not real. Maybe your relationship is. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't know anything about her besides these visions that he's been having since he was a child. So maybe he does know about her. He just didn't think she was real. All I'm saying is he pulled way above his weight class for (laughs) both of them. Do you remember what you said the first time we see these images that he's been drawing of this mysterious woman? What did I say? You said, it's him. He's trans. I did say that. Did you actually think that? No. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean, wouldn't it have been no. interesting? It would have been a way more interesting story if that was true. Yeah. 
This is the first time that we see Deanna say that she's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. You said that you immediately thought of the trans pirate from Strange New Worlds. (laughs) No, what I said was, I said she reminds me of the tra- of, of of the character the trans actor played on Strange New Worlds who was bisexual and couldn't sit right. Right, yeah, that's, that's right. That's what I said. Yeah, because she comes in claiming to be like a, I, a psychologist know, or a counselor. Yeah. yeah. Also had, just side note, no idea. I'm so happy. I'm so hyped. You're so want, hyped? Yeah. Yeah. Need her on my TV more. Anyway. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this this is a, did remind me of that. Yeah, so this is the first time that we've heard her actually say that she's a psychologist. She's not just somebody who sits in the in the chair and has feelings, right? I just like I <laughs> should more people have staff psychologists? Yes. Is it weird that Picard has one? Also, yes. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that like oh, in I didn't this say culture interesting. in this culture, psychologists are valued not just because of like the the help that they provide, the treatment they provide, but also for their insight. I swear, if you tell me teachers are valued in this society, just no. It is a utopia. Stop. So, well. anyway, the one thing I didn't understand was why Deanna had to leave completely. Like, she was like, oh, I have to leave if I get married. And then they didn't know where they were going afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, why? Like, there are tons of married couples on this ship, clearly. Yeah, but their little destiny visions didn't tell them they were going to be here. Yeah, I guess that's fair. So, I mean, (laughs) if it was that important, their destiny vision would have told them that. We also finally get to see Deanna lose her temper at the debacle of a rehearsal dinner. This is right up there with the wharf glass. (laughs) She knocks the gong over on her way out. It's it's such, it's the other type of petulant cat behavior. (laughs) But the petty bickering between Loxana and Wyatt's parents, Data was fascinated by it. What did you think <laughs> about this scene? I, well, I definitely felt called out because that, I will not do the wharf stare you in the face fly, but I will do that on the way out. Hitting the gong. Hit the thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I feel called out by that. I, I do enjoy this Data... It's like, oh, this is fascinating. Humans do this. Well, yeah, you don't have to enjoy it so much, pal. Uh, Picard, you're hovering. And Data's just like standing next to them. Like <laughs> He actually asked them to continue their petty bickering. Once at one again, point. this is very Sheldon. Yeah, I could see like, that. I really like, I understand that character so much more now. We also get some pretty dope flute soundtracks, I think, in this episode. I forgot how much flute was a part of our 80s. <laughs> sci-fi emotion yeah it's a real vibe i told you what i remember what i said about this because you said you know it it, 80s emotion you know it's really up to like a 10 or whatever when there's a flute and i said boy you're gonna love the karate kid when we watch that (laughs) yes oh boy i can't wait ladies and gentlemen and and them's I have I not I'm so excited. seen the Karate Kid. Although you've seen parts of several episodes of Cobra Kai. I have. Con, so I have. I feel like I've explained to uh, you the entire... I know. I know. I know so... the Karate Kid. Oh. So the last thing I wanted to engage with on this episode... <laughs> engage with. And Riker ah, says it this ha. time. Remember at the end of the episode, he's like, engage. I know. That's why I said it. Yeah. Because if everybody else is going to say it, I will too. Uh, obviously. That's... So, Riker... Yeah. The other person in this love quadrangle thing we have going on. So Riker <laughs> is upset that Deanna is getting married. Hard to know why. 
And there's a lot of tension in this episode because he's he kind of pouts most of the episode, yeah, to be completely honest. It's like, I don't really want to be with you, but I also don't want you to be unavailable either. But that's not the well, question I wanted to ask. The question I wanted to ask is was... which Taylor Swift vibes is this? It's it's the you belong with me. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, that wasn't a... I, that, yeah, stand corrected. That was a very important question. Yes, I'm was. glad that you brought that up. You're welcome. He doesn't even hold a sign up in the holodeck, I though. know. Well, you okay? I, I don't think he's that emotionally involved yet. That's fair. He gets there, obviously. Halfway through this episode, you remembered that Riker and Deanna are married. I didn't. Well, in Picard. remembered is a strong word. You were like, oh, yeah. Because remember in the pilot, you were like, I'm not convinced by this relationship. Yeah. So my question to you is, now that you remember that they do get married eventually, yeah. are you invested more in this relationship? No. Not no, yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> no. They've got some work to do. I mean, I I believe that. What did you think about her whole thing where she comes and finds him on the holodeck and she's like, oh, humans aren't very evolved with their emotions yet. They don't understand the concept of platonic love. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. I mean, like, it's like, there is a time. <laughs> I can guarantee you this is not it. The look on his face was very like, that is not Hey, what I want. Hey, buddy. <laughs> you're, you're a great guy. And, you know, one day, some really lucky girl is going to meet you. And, and it's just going to be, it's going to be great. I am not into you. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> this, this was that. And it's not great. Well, she also says that the reason they're not together is because he wants to be a Starfleet captain. Oh, right. And sure. And apparently that ambition is keeping them from being together. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? The, the, I mean, I'm not saying you can't let a guy down gently. I'm not. This is not that podcast. <laughs> it's, it's that you could just say the thing. Don't. I don't need your platitudes. I don't need your condescension. Just say the thing, man. You're an empath. You should know better. She doesn't practice radical honesty like her mom, though. Well. She does get territorial over Riker when Loxana starts hitting on him, though. <laughs> and then, of course, we get the joke at the end where she says that Picard is thinking pornographic things about her yeah. when he's not. He's shocked. Shocked. Shocked, I say. That 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 uptight British yeah. he's British, come on. French. Well, I'm just saying, a few a few centuries from now, we we don't know. Yeah, that's fair. We don't know. That's fair. It's called it's better... called the reverse Norman conquest. <laughs> hair check. Who had better hair? Crusher when she had her little updo oh, at the right. rehearsal? Yeah. Or Troy when she had her little princess mm, updo. Well Okay. So the answer is Crusher, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I'll tell you why. First, that is the best that I've seen Crusher's hair so far, and it's great. But she has great hair, period. So, like, that's saying something. And I think the other thing to think about is which one could you do? Which look could you take and use for yourself? I thought you were asking which person could you do? <laughs> Well, Tessa, I don't know. I think maybe you could get Troy. I think I think maybe. I don't think you really have it. I think I think Crusher might be too hetero for you. Oh, you're Am I wrong? I'm okay. I'm not gonna say anything. Um those of you who know, you know. All right. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Well, 
I don't know. Who would you could only choose one? Who would you choose? That's really hard because I. Uh, You'd pick Troy. Yeah. I know you. I know you. She's relationship material. I know. I know. I know I'm you. just saying. I know. I do. I do love Beverly Crusher. Oh well, though. sure. And that that updo is great. It, it is. It is. I was impressed. I, we do have a couple of trivia things about this because there were several actors who were introduced in it who, besides Majel Barrett, who have a long history with Star Trek. We get Dutch actor Carol Strunken, who made his first appearance as Mr. Hom, the assistant to Loxana uh. Troy, who has several appearances along with Loxana. Um, and, but he did have a line of dialogue here at the end that's supposed to be like the puncher. Dope. Dope. Robert Ellenstein appears as Stephen Miller, Wyatt's dad. He had appear- previously appeared as the Federation planet in The Voyage Home. Haven. <laughs> the Stephen Miller band. The Stephen Miller band. <laughs> we also get the first appearance of Armin Shimmerman, who appears as the face of the Betazoid gift box in yeah. this episode. He will, of course, play a lot of bit characters in The Next Generation before he finally has a main character in Deep Space Nine. Quark. So you look forward to that. Good for him. Good for him. He's great. Anything else you want to say about this episode or hide and cue? Obviously, you preferred Haven, even though we didn't get any Worf in Haven. We got no Deanna in hide and cue and no Worf in right. Haven. I, I think once we started talking about Crusher and Troy, I think we said that was everything that could possibly Fair. be said. All right. Join us next week for our discussion of the episode's data lore and 11001001. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time, live long and prosper.